Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Well, we're in a series where we've been looking back at the things that God spoke to our hearts when we planted Renewal City Church a little over 10 years ago. Uh, Part of the reason that we have been looking back is uh, just to remember where we've come from, to have some perspective on who we are. Um, And then really through this process, we're seeking to hear from the Lord a fresh word for today. What is God speaking to us today about how we should operate as a community of faith together. What is God speaking to you individually about your place in the body of Christ and how he would lead you uh, to be the person that he's called you to be. And so a a couple of weeks ago, we we covered Isaiah 43, which was one of the Bible verses that we felt like God spoke to our hearts and and had us going with this. It, It reads, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. It's springing up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wastelands. And we receive that as a, as, as a word from the Lord, that he was calling us to do a new work, to do something new, as well as, as a, a comforting word of provision. He's with us. The one who is with us is the one who can make streams in the deserts, the one who, who uh, makes roads in the wilderness. You know, he's the one who can do it all. And, and we felt encouraged by that. And then last week we talked about uh, Paul's letter to, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul talks about how he's looking at the world around him. And he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded even Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And I talked last week about how we really felt like that verse was speaking to us to, to have a fresh perspective when we looked at our community, to see them, to see the people in our community as a pearl of great price and that God was calling us to, to, um, to minister and to pursue the people of our community, uh, selling it all for uh, the cause of seeing them reconciled to God. There's a third verse that we really felt like God spoke to us through the process of planting the church, and that's the one that we're going to look at today. It's from Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we'll start in verse 14. As Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, uh, he chapter 2 is all about how the body of Christ is supposed to relate to one another. And so he's saying, uh, he, he opens it up saying, look, if you have found anything good in your relationship with Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, but if, if you found any comfort, if you found anything good in the work of of God in your life, then this is what I want you to do. In your relationships with one another, I want you to, one, consider others as, as greater than yourself or more worthy than yourself. I want you to adopt the same mindset of Jesus who came to earth, humbled himself, emptied himself of the glory of heaven and humbled himself and, and came to serve and ultimately to suffer and sacrifice his life on our behalf. And Paul says that's the mindset that I want to have guide you in your relationships with one another. Then comes 
Philippians 2, verse 14, where he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Some, some translations say grumbling or complaining. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You know, when you read that particular part of the passage in context, and you should always read verses in context when you're trying to interpret what are the scriptures saying to me, notice the connection in Paul's mind between being blameless and pure and how the Lord's people get along with one another, how they treat one another, what their their relational posture is. Are you coming to those around you feeling smugly superior to them, or are you considering others as greater than yourself? Are you coming to those around you holding fast to the rights and things that you feel entitled to as one who's made in God's image? Or are you quick to lay these things aside in sacrificial service and and demonstrations of love for your fellow humanity the way that Christ did? In Paul's mind, blamelessness and purity are inseparable from how you get along with those brothers and sisters that God has brought into your life, those that you're in fellowship with. Blameless and pure is somehow connected to don't grumble, don't complain, don't, um, sorry, don't grumble, don't complain, don't argue with one another. The captivating phrase in in all this verse, I mean, we joked that it was grumbling and complaining and we were going to be a church that never complained. We lasted, I think, maybe three months doing that and then people started complaining (laughs) myself included. Um, The captivating phrase for us was that we would shine like the stars. Jesus wants his people to shine. Why? Well, because the world needs light. You know, when we first looked into buying the Roxy Theater, uh, we we knew it as uh, the South Pacific Bar and Grill. In fact, still, if people don't recognize, oh, we have the Roxy Theater. What building is that? Well, do you remember the South Pacific Bar and Grill, that green building down on Commerce? Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Or if they're maybe over 60, I say, do you remember the Longview Furniture Store? It was a furniture store for 20 years from 1980 to 2000. Um, But as we were looking into the buying process, one of the things that we discovered was that it was called the Roxy Theater in the 1930s. The Roxy Theater was a uh, like small town theater chain back then. And, and you'll have, there's like Roxy Theater in Chehalis. There's a Roxy Theater and other small towns around. Uh, not Chehalis, sorry, Morton. Um, anyways, we discovered it was the name Roxy. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That sounds way better than uh, the South Pacific Bar and Grill. And we needed to have a new name for the building. So um, so I, I thought, I'll, I'll look it up. What, is, what does the name Roxy mean? And of course, I end up on like new mom websites, you know, baby naming websites. Like if you Google, what does this name mean? Like don't, you're not going to get an academic website to like page three. It's going to all be like new mom websites. And the new mom website said that it was a, it was a girl's name, a luminous girl's name that is of Persian origin. And it, it means dawn or star or bright. It also means that a fortuitous Sorry, it has a fortuitous meaning that signals the beginning of a new and exciting adventure. And all of these things just felt so strangely relevant to me, which is, I don't know, you know, it it was like, wow, this is really crazy. So I started to do a deeper dive into it, like this theme of light 
and beauty and and fortuitous new beginnings. Like all of this felt like it was really something that that was right in line with the things that God had spoken to us before. And as I dove a little deeper into it, um, you, you learn that, that, I mean, the name goes through several changes as it gets translated from language to language to language. But, but it was based on the, on the Persian word for light or for the, the star, or the morning star. Um, it was based on, on the idea, the Persian word for like lovely or a flare of loveliness. Luminous beauty was thrown in there as well. The mom websites weren't just making that up. Luminous beauty. That's a phrase I've, I don't know that I've ever said in a microphone before. Um, discovering all of this was kind of like the Lord speaking to us that you are on the right track. The Roxy Theater is the perfect place for Renewal City Church to, to take up residence and do everything without grumbling, complaining, and shine like the stars in the midst of our downtown, in the midst of our city. This talk about shining, if, you are, uh, if you're a believer and you find these themes, one of the things that you want to do is begin to look in Scripture for where does this theme of shining come out? What is this idea about? There's a story in Exodus 28 where Moses is up on the mountain talking to God and God is giving him instructions for how to organize the newly freed nation of Israel and, and a, a people group who's been enslaved and oppressed for four centuries. And God has just dramatically set them free. And Moses is their leader. And God is telling Moses how to organize this nation. And one of the things that God instructs Moses to do is to install his brother Aaron and then Aaron's sons as priests for Israel. People who will stand in the gap between humanity and God and show humanity who God is and speak to God on behalf of humanity about who humanity is and what they, what they need. And, and God gives instructions to Moses to dress the priests in these bright white clothes that have all of these golden and precious jewel accents. And the priests are supposed to wear these bright, glittering, shimmering clothes when they go into the tabernacle that is designed to look like and to remind us of the Garden of Eden. The priests are supposed to wear these clothes when they're in Eden, representing who humanity is supposed to be in relationship with God. And so the priests would enter this sacred space that's reminiscent of the garden. They'd enter it through sacrifices and, and worship and they would go into that space. And, and in that moment, it was like the people of Israel were supposed to see what humanity was meant to be. These shining, glimmering humans doing God's work in the garden. You think about that image that God prescribed Moses to have. And you begin to wonder, like, how far have we fallen? How far has humanity fallen from what we were meant to be? When Jess was sharing at the, the KLMA meeting this week about royal family kids, and she was, she was vulnerable with who she is and brought who she was and the fullness of that into this ministry and sharing with trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord. And it was this holy moment where I told her afterwards, like, you were glowing. It was like she was glowing. I don't know that there was, I, I didn't look around, but there weren't any dry eyes on this face. And I doubt that there were dry eyes in the room. Like, it was a really holy moment. And, and, I, and I'm thinking about 
thinking about what it is to be fully human. And in that moment, Jess McLeod was as fully human as Jess McLeod is ever meant to be. Like God was just shining through her. Those are the moments that God is trying to welcome humanity into, that he's trying to draw each of us into, where we would be like that in the garden with God doing his work, shimmering with the glory of his presence that's infused into us as his image bearers. So the picture is painted for us in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes and he fulfills this purpose. Jesus is the light of the world. In Luke chapter 9, we have a story of Jesus being transfigured, which if you haven't heard the story before, you probably haven't heard that word before. But Jesus takes a few of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain. He begins to pray. And then the account says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, Luke says. I think Matthew's gospel says his clothes became as white as light. Jesus is our example of what humanity is supposed to be. I don't know what your prayer times are like. I know what my prayer times are like. I never come away from them glowing. But there's something in here that's set up for us. This is how humanity is meant to be in the presence of God. We are made, we are created to shine in God's image. We were created as image bearers of God, where his light was meant to shine out of us into the world. Jesus said to his disciples, You're a light, you are the light of the world. You are a city shining on a hill. He made us to shine. You imagine, what would it have been like to be Peter or James or, or John there on the hill, watching Jesus pray, seeing the transfiguration happen. And, and you have this amazing moment to see humanity in the fullness of our glory, what we were meant to be. How would that impact you? Shortly after witnessing Jesus' transfiguration and another miracle or two in the same chapter in verse 46 of Luke chapter 9, we see the results of what it is when humanity gets to see humanity as they really are. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples <laughs> as to which of them was the greatest. You know how it is. You see something miraculous and holy and you're like ready to, I don't know, abandon sin forever. And, and then you get back to life and it's like you've completely forgotten who it is that you're with. And so here are the disciples, they're walking around with Jesus every day, and this kind of stuff is still happening. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, so unfair, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, and he had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you. It's the one who's least among you all who is the greatest. In a very human moment, selfish ambition overcomes Jesus' followers. And there's arguing and posturing about who's the greatest. 
And then Jesus points them right back to humble service. It's like they're arguing over who gets to lead the church. And Jesus is like, just sign up for children's church, please. We need teachers up there who are willing to serve these kids. And the time that you would spend ministering to this little child, welcoming this little child in my name, telling this child that they are a part of my family. It's as if you were ministering to me. It's as if you were saying these very words to to God himself. He's somehow blessed with it. It's the book of James that says, how can you say that you love God who you've whom you've never seen, I'm now second-guessing myself. Maybe it's the book of John. Sorry, first, first John maybe, but I think it's James. Look it up later. Somebody let me know if I'm right or wrong. It says, how can you say that you love God when you don't love your fellow man who's been created in his image? Why is blamelessness and purity so related to how we treat one another? Because God takes it very personally how we treat those who have been made in his image. We're his beloved children. You would find something similar in your relationship with me if you were to mistreat one of my children. That would be tough for me to overcome. That would be hard for me to forgive or feel all lovey-dovey for you. I think so it is with our Father in heaven. This is why there is so much language in Scripture Reminding us, encouraging us, commanding us to love and serve those who are around us. The disciple John has this epic response to Jesus' rebuke. So he says, he says to them, whoever welcomes one of these children welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me is welcoming the one who sent me, the Father in heaven. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. And John pipes up. He says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, so we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. He is not one of us. He has no part in us. So the disciples are a group of 12 men who are very close to Jesus, going around with him everywhere. There was a a bit of a larger posse that was probably running around, maybe 70 or so people, uh, men and women included in in that posse that ran around with Jesus. And somewhere in this, I mean, these are the only details we have the story, but somewhere in this, they came across, the disciples came across somebody who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they did what any good disciple would do. They would say, let's see your credentials. And if they didn't have the right credentials, they said, you can't do this anymore. I... Sorry, I'm judging like what I say and what I don't, trying to be aware of my time here. But but uh, driving out demons was something the disciples did, had struggled with at times. They had some success at it. They had some mixed results. And somewhere in this story, I feel like I can, I can almost hear, I can almost see like the little green monster inside of John, right? Like they come across this guy who's being real successful and they're like, but he's not, he's not credentialed the way we are. He's not one of us. He's not a part of our circle. And And they're like, yeah, darn it, he's being successful too. It's sort of like, you know, I can't believe more people go to that church than this church. Like, what is going on here? And so that's all coming out. Jesus says to them, oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to skip over that part. 
Jesus says to them, do not stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. John and the disciples are trying to discourage this aspiring exorcist because he's not in the group. He's not the right person to be doing this. They're unsure of where he's at. And Jesus says, no, don't. When John says that he has no part in us, I I was reminded that phrase jumped out to me because it, it shows up elsewhere in Scripture. Maybe some of you are thinking of it right now, too. Uh, A couple of years ago, we did a series on Ezra and Nehemiah when the exiles from Babylon come back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And something happened when they came back to build the temple. I want to do like a question and answer thing. We'll get Bob up here and he'll... No, we won't. No, it's okay. You've been put on the spot more than than enough today. Uh, The Jews come back to the Holy Land. They go to build the temple. And living in the land at the time were exiles from... uh, Displaced exiles from other regions of the Babylonian Empire who'd been, who'd been sent there. There were members of the nation of Israel who had never left. And so this group of people who are living there, and the, the account actually says the enemies of the Jews come to them. And they say to them, can we help you build this temple? We have been sacrificing to your God and, and, and seeking him ever since we got stuck in this place. And we would love to help with this work that God is doing. And the Jews say, you have no part in us. No, you cannot come and do this. And those enemies become a thorn in the side of the, of the Jewish people as they're trying to do the work. They become people who are committed to discouraging them, distracting them, and taking them away from the work that God meant them to do. You have to wonder, though, does God bringing your enemies around to help you sound like the God of the Bible? Does that sound like redemption? Does that sound like something that only God could do, where those who were your enemies become your best helpers? And so often when, uh, when God's people are faced with a situation and they seek the Lord about what to do, he would lead them into very counterintuitive types of things. Like, get rid of most of your soldiers and just take a few into battle. Or, I'm going to go, you know what, you just sit here. I'm going to go ahead of you. Don't even worry about raising your arms. It's going to get done. What would have happened if, if the Jews would have said, Lord, all of our enemies are coming and offering us to help, and they sought the Lord in that matter. What would have happened? They didn't. They said, uh, no, you can't. Uh, Cyrus, the king, sent us to do this, and uh, so we're going to do it. Who are they serving at that point? Are they serving God, or are they serving the king? What might have been different? What might have been different? John sees that whoever this is is not a part of the team, but Jesus sees this person, whoever they were, as a vital part of the, ki- of the kingdom, as a vital part of the team. Jesus, Jesus knows that the, the shimmering priests of the Old Testament and him walking around now as the light of the world and, and serving and sacrificing and healing and delivering and transforming people's lives. He knows this is how every human being was created to live. Jesus is there as an example. The priests are there as an example. But all of humanity is invited into this thing. God is so committed to every human being fulfilling their purpose as an image bearer of God. 
one of our guiding principles that we founded Renewal on was that, Je- was that Jesus uses everyone. Yesterday we talked about how Jesus is for everyone. He's what everyone needs. He's the solution to everyone's problems. People have a, people have a relational problem in their life that leads to a sin problem. We also believe that Jesus uses everyone. We believe that as the Old Testament alludes to and the New Testament explicitly teaches, we believe that God has declared Jesus' followers are a kingdom of priests. We are all a part of this royal priesthood. Each one of us is made in the image of God. Each one of us is meant to be a light in the world, a city shining on a hill. Every person you meet was made to shine. The question is, will humanity embrace what God created them to do or will they reject God? Because of that, we believe that they don't have to be a part of our holy huddle, our group of disciples, to be used by God. God seems to be in the habit of bringing people constantly from the outside, the most unlikely candidates, into his people group circles with the intention of blessing them through his, their blessing his people through their presence, helping his people do the things that God has called them to do through their presence. I was driving last Saturday morning. Uh, we were up early and driving down to Salem for a volleyball tournament. And um, Clara was sleeping in the back seat. Uh, we weren't really talking. We're just driving in silence and listening to music and, and watching. And as we're driving down through Portland and get south of it, I look over and the sky had cleared a little bit and there's just one star up in the sky. Just one star. The moon wasn't hanging out. I don't know where it was, but there's one star. It was probably like a planet. Maybe it was Venus or something like that. People who know more about that can tell me which star it was. Um, but it was, it was over there in the eastern sky and, and, and it was quiet. It was early in the morning. It was still very dark and this star is just hanging out. And it had me thinking about these themes, this idea of Jesus using everyone. And, and, I, and I, it, was like, it was like the idea came to my mind. I think the Lord spoke to me that there are billions of stars in the sky right now. I mean, you know, we don't see it all because, you know, the planet blocks half of our view of space and, and light pollution and all that. But billions of stars in the sky right now. And he was like, that one star is the one making all the difference for you right now. The one star. Out of the billions and billions of stars, each one is important because they have the potential to make a difference for somebody. Each one is making all the difference somewhere. We need each star to shine because there's somebody somewhere who needs that light. I think about this in terms of Jesus uses everyone and who God's calling us to be as a body of Christ. And I I think of how desperately we need every one of you, how essential you are to the work of the kingdom in our community. The need that the church has for you is, is entirely independent of whether you're here every Sunday, every hidden Bible study, every Tuesday, whether you call renewal home or you're just a visitor from somewhere like you're a human being who was made in God's image. You were made to shine and the world desperately needs light. You are vital. 
to the growth of the kingdom around you. You are the vital to casting light in the darkness and the crookedness that's around you. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would be working in each of our hearts in this season to show us how to take our place in the kingdom. Maybe it's serving kids in Royal Family Kids Camp. Maybe it's serving kids in Children's Church upstairs. Maybe it's connecting with a neighbor or a loved one or a co-worker who just needs the light of God shining in their life. Jesus uses everyone, and we need every one of you engaged with how Jesus is wanting to use you for his kingdom. Let's pray, and then we'll turn to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we are just grateful to be your people. What a miracle that you have made us in your image, that you have designed us to shine. Father, we confess that there is so much that we do that diminishes your light in us. Choices we make, sinful behaviors we engage in. We are not worthy to be called your children. And yet you are so committed to us. Thank you for being unwavering in your commitment to me. Thank you for being unwavering in your commitment to every one of us. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to, uh, to guide us and to lead us into, uh, to the future that you have for every one of us. And we just invite you to light us up. Set our hearts on fire, Lord. We want to be kingdom people shining brightly like the stars in the sky. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned the priest would come into the tabernacle all shimmering and, and representing humanity as they're supposed to be. They came into the tabernacle bringing sacrifices and offerings. And I think that's because God was, well, a number of reasons, but one, one helpful way to think of it is that that is because God was communicating to humanity that the only way for us to be everything we were created to be was through a great sacrifice, a great offering. And that sacrifice and offering was Jesus Christ to come in the flesh and bear the sin of humanity on humanity's behalf and seal a covenant where uh, God's forgiveness is the thing being offered and our sins are no longer counted against us. And the sacrifice that he brought was his own body and his own blood that were poured out for us and offered up on the cross on our behalf. The beauty of that is that uh, we don't have to bring animals and sacrifices and any of that anymore because the final sacrifice that all that pointed to has already been done. The tragedy of all that is that God himself had to offer up the life of his son on our behalf because of the waywardness of our own hearts. And so as we come to the table today, I just want you to hold these two things together. One, Lord, I'm so grateful that you have sealed it all, that this sacrifice overcomes all of the waywardness in my heart. But, but let's be mindful, too, of how costly that sacrifice is. It's so easy when we get off scot-free to forget that a high price was paid. And yet the Messiah suffered and died, that we could rejoice in the richness of fellowship that God offers us. And so, um, yeah, so let's come to the table that way. As, as we sing another 
song or two together, uh, we would just invite you to come up, tear off a piece of the bread. Uh, if Come up with maybe some people who are sitting by you or grab somebody who's sitting alone. We like to do this together. And uh, somebody in the group, just say a prayer of thanksgiving to God, uh, thanking him for his great sacrifice, acknowledging the high cost that it is, and rejoicing in all that it has is, it is accomplished for us. And uh, we'll just close the service uh, at the most table together.